0: i should you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, as we continue in our survey of this sermonic letter. Now, you've heard us for the past several weeks use that phrase over, uh, at, uh, from time to time, It's a sermonic letter, uh, meaning that this uh, book is written in such a way, it is a letter, but it doesn't carry some of the characteristics of a letter. In other words, there is no greetings at the beginning and there is no identification of the person who has written it. Nevertheless, it was a letter that was written to a particular body of people, uh, to most likely to Jewish believers in uh, living in Rome, although we're not certain of that, uh, but it was written to a particular group of people who were living under the, uh, the reign of Nero, feeling very insecure, insignificant, and, uh, and, and becoming quite hopeless. Uh, it's also a, a sermon in a sense, and so somebody put their sermon in writing. Uh, and so you're going to see a number of, of reflections on various passages of Scripture that are throughout, interspersed throughout this uh, letter, uh, and sometimes without a particular reference. And the reason for those is because there is an application over and over again. Uh, the truth is being presented oftentimes for the purpose of encouragement, sometimes for the purpose of instruction, bringing us back to encouragement. And our text this morning is an encouragement to believers. Uh, who are living in this world, Uh, and yet it is inseparably linked to the instruction that we received last week that Camper uh, brought to us from uh, the beginning of this chapter, where we're told to be careful lest we drift. This part of this passage is a direct application to enable us to keep from drifting. A reading this morning from Hebrews chapter 2. We'll begin our reading in verse 5 and continue through verse 9. Hear the word of our God. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you should care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. he might taste death for everyone. The word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come yet again to your word, we pray uh, that you would speak to us through it and by your spirit. We pray, clinging to your promise, that your word is powerful, it is effective, and it accomplishes its purpose. So we pray that this word would not only instruct, uh, but it would construct. It would not only inform, but it would form that each of us would have our minds renewed to be in line with your truth, that we would see our lives in this world uh, in line with your truth, and that we might all be built up into full maturity in Christ. Lord, grant us this hope from your word in accordance with your promise, which we pray in the name of the word incarnated, Jesus Christ. Amen. For most of my adult life, it would have probably been appropriate to consider me a a news junkie. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, and interspersed throughout the day, really consistently throughout the day, even if the news was simply the the background noise to whatever else I happened to be doing uh, at any particular time. I also would regularly purchase a few papers, subscribe to several magazines or, or journals, so all in the uh, pursuit of being informed, which itself is certainly not a bad thing. Certainly it's you know, being informed is preferable to being ignorant in most circumstances. But all of that changed, I don't know, a little over a year, year and a half ago for me. I don't know whether it was the the cumulative effect of years of constant consumption, or if it was just the, the increased intensity and ugliness that has permeated our news over the past few years, but while most of my adult life I would rightly be classified as a news junkie, I almost never watch the news anymore. I rarely by a newspaper, and I have no subscriptions to any of these news journals. It's not that there's anything wrong with pursuits of, of being informed, and while I am not nearly as informed, I suppose, as I was before, I don't think that I'm being uh, totally ignorant either. I choose to be informed with what seems to be important, like uh, is, you know, is there a tornado or hurricane coming our way? Is there a British or Canadian invasion that we need to be aware of and prepare for? Who's president at this point in time? And yeah, maybe since we have governor, uh, you know, those kinds of things, big deal things that might affect my day to day life. And the reason that I made this change was not because I had this epiphany of of wisdom and have now become the expert of what I need to know and what I don't need to know. But the reason this change took place in my life uh, about a year, year and a half ago was because I found in my constant consumption that it was taking a toll, uh, that it was having, uh, playing havoc with my emotional stability. And I don't know if I am alone in that. Actually, I know I'm not alone in that and that may not be true for everyone. And so I wanna be very clear, I'm not suggesting to you and my point today is everybody stop watching the news. That's, That's not the application for everyone. But it may be an application for some of you, because it was, uh, and has been helpful for me. But I began to recognize that as every once in a while I would turn on a, a, an old TV show, that the, the lyrics of the theme song, a song written by Randy Newman, uh, if you've ever seen the TV show Monk, it's the, the theme song for that show. And the lyrics of that began to to resonate with me, you probably know them. And so the song begins this way. It's a jungle out there, disorder and confusion everywhere. And no one seems to care. Well, I do. People think I'm crazy because I worry all the time. But if you paid attention, you'd be worried too. And you better pay attention or this world that we love so much might just kill you. And I was feeling that weight of being so conscious, so aware, and being so keenly aware of all of the ugliness it was making me weary. And it was robbing me of peace. It was robbing me of joy. It was making me more irritable. I was more prone to engage in arguments simply for the sake of expressing my opinion on something that really may not matter in in the moment. And then there's another lyric that is in that song that really caught my attention because kind of in the middle of the song, uh, the, uh, the, the artist says, hey, who's in charge here? In other words, he's singing about this world that we live in that is broken and just not the way that we wish it was. And in his sense, he's thinking the world's out of control, so there must be no one in control. And I had to ask myself that question. Who's in control? Well, fortunately for us, the writer to the book of Hebrews is speaking to people who were weary from living in a world where they felt insignificant and felt like they were just kind of a a, a spit in the ocean. Uh, They really were not making any difference, couldn't make any difference. As a result, they were becoming somewhat hopeless, and in their hopelessness, They were beginning to drift, and they were wondering, who's in control here really as they suffered under the persecution of Emperor Nero? And it's to that people, the writer of the Hebrews wrote and wrote this particular passage and tells them and tells us through them that Jesus Christ is in control. The whole essence of this passage is to remind us that Jesus is the one who has been enthroned, that God had put him in control, put all things in subjection to him. Picking up on the theme that we read in chapter one, where we were reminded that God has put all things under his feet as a footstool. Even his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet because Jesus Christ is God's appointed and anointed king. And he's in control of all things. And this is the hope that we need to constantly remind ourselves of in fact, it is this hope and the promises that belong to all who belong to Jesus that we need to tether ourselves to if we're going to keep from drifting in this world. And the writer of Hebrews, as he writes these, this passage, which you know at first look can seem like a jumbled uh, expression of Old Testament passages and applications and instruction and, and whatever, but he, he makes an argument for us. He begins by saying, showing us and reminding us of the way things are supposed to be. And then he moves to the way things really are. And then he finishes up with the way things will be. And so if you've read this passage in advance and it just seems to be all kind of jumbled together, I hope that it will not be confusing. You'll be able to see the flow of that by the time we're done. But in all of that, there is tremendous application for us today not only in keeping us from drifting, uh, but specific things that we can consider so that we can be tethered, that we can be anchored to the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so we begin with the argument of the way things are supposed to be, the way God designed to be. We see the beginning of this passage, he, he makes an allusion that may seem sort of out of place, but again, he's developing a theme that he's already done, he's already spoken about, which is the relationship that we have with angels, the relationships angels have with this world, the relationship that Jesus has with angels. And so in verse 5, he says this, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And so he's not only connecting, again, reminding us of the superiority of Jesus that he's going to talk about in a moment uh, to angels, as incredible as angels are, but he's also addressing what appears to have been a myth or a superstition in that day that is probably not far from at least the wishes and desires of many in our day, which suggests that there were people who either believed that angels would one day rule or wish that angels would rule this world and assuming that if they were in control, if they were in charge, that everything would be much better. The writer of Hebrews is saying that's not the way God had originally designed things. He, he never had. Angels he created, just like humanity he created. He created uh, angels after his own image in, in a fashion, although we're not given a great detail of them, just as he created man after his own image. Uh, but angels were different, and angels were different and had a particular purpose for which God had, had created them than humanity. Angels were always created to be servants of God and servants of the people that he particularly made after his own image, the the, the humanity, men and women, uh, us. And angels were never designed to be in charge. They were always designed to be administrators and to be servants to help the advancement of the kingdom of God for the benefit of the people that God would one day redeem. And in redeeming, exalt. And the writer is telling us from the very beginning, When God created man, it was God's intention that you and I, that humanity would rule over this earth, that we would govern all things by not only creating order, but by being stewards of everything else that God has created. He's bringing our attention back to Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27. We call that the creation mandate, where when God had made man, he said, now rule over the birds of the earth, fishes. everything is now in subjection to you. You are to cultivate this, which doesn't mean abuse and do as we please, but we are able to use and do what is good to the glory of God, for the benefit of humanity, and for the, for the, for the, the good of the entire world. That was the charge that was given to our first parents, Adam and Eve. As so far as we can tell, they did a pretty decent job of that early on. Until sin entered the world. Once sin entered entered the world, one of the things that became characteristic in their lives and the lives of everyone who came after them is that everyone does what they think is best for themselves, or at least for those who are closest to them. You think about the original sin. He was tempted. You could be like God. Hey, that seemed like it would be a good thing. Maybe they had the idea that it would just be kind of a noble, you know, I don't have to bother the real God, you know, because I would be wise as God is, and I don't have to depend on God so much. And they thought that that was good. But in the end, they had this desire to be like God, so they did what they thought would be best for them, not best for the relationship with God, not best for the world. They did what would be best for them. And then after them, their children. And after them, everyone is born to them. And after all, now with billions of people on the earth, every one of us doing what we think is best for us, no wonder we have such chaos all around us. The original design the writer of the Hebrews is telling us is this, is the way things are supposed to be, is that man is to rule, to govern over the earth in accordance with God's principles and God's law. That's the way things are supposed to be. And he goes on and he applies this. And we see, he's now putting everything in subjection to him. He has left nothing outside of his control. And in the Greek, there's a double negative there. There is nothing that is not under his control. And that's to underscore the, the authority and the, uh, the, um, the greatness of this creation mandate, which we were created. To exercise. And yet, every one of us knows that this world is not functioning the way that we wish it would, the way that it ought to. And the writer of Hebrews. goes on and he he reminds us not just of the way things were designed to be, but the way things really are. And the New Testament, scholar William Lane says, our human experience makes a mockery of such grandiose statement. Everything is under subjection, under our feet, like there's order that's all around us. Everything is going the way that it's supposed to be. Because all we have to do is look around and as a result of of sin, we see all the ugliness and all of the bigotry and racism and division and hostility and the oppression which leads to war. And that's not just characteristic of our culture in this day and time, it's been characteristic of humanity ever since our first parents sinned. Because everyone does what they think is right in their own eyes. Everyone does what is seemingly best for me and maybe for those who are around me. And much less consideration is given to the way God has designed things and to the good of everyone who is around. And so, Randy Newman, the songwriter, is right. If you pay attention, you'd be worried too, because this is the world that we live in, and this is our common experience. Writer of Hebrews begins by saying, this is the way things are supposed to be. It's the way God designed it. But this is the way that it really is, and we all know it. Now, one of the things that I really appreciate about this passage, and really throughout all of the Scriptures, is that the, the Scripture is in no way Pollyannish nor encouraging for us to be Christians to be Pollyannish. And the word Pollyannish is, it comes from a, a story, from a, a novel from Eleanor Porter. It was written in 1913. It's become a play, and it's become a movie, 1960-something movie, it was a uh, starring Haley Mills. And the lead character was a a young girl named Pollyanna Whittier, who after the death of her parents moved to Vermont to stay with her uh, rather unpleasant aunt. But Pollyanna had this, we'll just call it a very optimistic uh, view of the world, or at least she intentionally chose to be highly optimistic, always looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. And she did that through a, a game that she designed that she called the, the glad game. And so regardless of the circumstances that she found herself in, she was always going to look for about something to make her glad about that very circumstance. And she first thought about that game and came up with that game on a Christmas morning where instead of receiving a doll that she wanted, she received crutches. And so she decided, rather than be disappointed, she would just be glad she didn't need the crutches. And since that made her feel better for the moment, she decided to take this approach to everything she did. When her unpleasant aunt put her in the attic to you know, kind of isolate her, to discipline her, she, rather than uh, feeling uh, the, the sting of this and, 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 uh, and the, the injustice of this, she decided she would just be glad that there was a window. And that through the window, she could see the beautiful scenery. That was out there. No matter what came her way, Pollyanna decided to look at the positive and only play the glad game. And then we have cultivated the word Pollyannish for people who only seem to see the positive. Now, the scripture does tell us, and, and we need to be very clear, count it all joy when we uh, meet, face uh, trials of various kinds and rejoice always. The scripture never calls for us to be Pollyannish. To pretend like everything is good. The scripture gives us a very real hope for a, a very real life in a very real world, and that we are not to just pretend like everything is the way that it's supposed to be and only look for the good, uh, but we have a hope and we have a joy that we are able to have in Christ uh, regardless of the circumstance. But if we don't recognize what is wrong and broken in the world, then we will not be part of the agency. Uh, or the vessels that God uses to bring about the correction within this world either. And I really appreciate in the Scriptures we're never asked to dismiss reality for the sake of pleasantness. But we are to have hope in the midst of our circumstances. Recognizing that God, who is in control, is working out His purpose and His plan. And He's using us as part of it. And so the writer of Hebrews begins by saying, here is the way things ought to be. Here's the way you know things really are in our experience. But then he quickly moves to the way things will be. See, in our text, and I'm going to back up for just a second, in our text, the writer of Hebrews, when he's he's talking about uh, things the way they ought to be, he says at the end of verse 8, at present we do not see everything in subjection to him. It's a very simple way of saying, look, we're not doing our job in cultivating godliness and God-conformity and peace, harmony, shalom throughout the earth. But he quickly makes an adjustment as we move into verse 9, the way things will be. He says, look, the reason that the world is such a mess is because everything is not being ruled and people are not in subjection uh, at this point in time. So we don't see everything in subjection. But in verse 9, he says, but we see Jesus. Actually, as he writes it this way, he says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is really quite an amazing thing. In order for us to have the hope that we are in need to be tethered to, uh, to, to the promises of God, in order to be able to see the way things are unfolding, even though it's going at a rate that is so slow that we are unable to perceive it. He begins to apply Psalm 8 to Jesus. Psalm 8 that David wrote, being amazed that the God who created everything, simply by speaking it into existence, should even be aware of him or of me, or of you, much less care. That's the opening words that he uses. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. What is man that you should be mindful of him, the son of man that you should care for him? And David just leaves that tension. He doesn't try to make a theological statement here and explain the reasons why. He's just awed that God, in his greatness and his holiness, is aware and cares about you and me. And then he explains the the whole mandate uh, uh, that was you know, God's created for a little while you made us a little lower than the angels and you know that may be because even though both humanity and angels are created, we have limitations because of our bodies, and angels are not limited by bodies. It might have reference to the fact that we are lower because every one of us is affected in sin because God, as he created us, entered into a federal covenant relationship so that whatever happened to our first parents is true of us. And so we're born in sin where angels seem to be more free agents. Some of them sinned, but it didn't seem to curse all of them. Whatever the theological implications are of this, the the biblical truth uh, over and over again is saying, at least for right now, for a time, we are a little lower than angels both created, but, you know, they're above us. They're more powerful. They're above us in, in, in their, in their uh, ability to, uh, to engage God. But the Scriptures teach that though one day humanity will be above angels, that at the time when Christ comes and fully reigns, that those who are in Christ, those who have been redeemed, will reign with him. If we have died with him, we will also raise with him. If we, are, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. This is the, the promise that uh, Paul uh, alluded to in writing to encourage his protege Timothy. And it's pointing to what will happen in the future at someday, that those of us who were created after the image of God, we will also be joint heirs and co-regents with Jesus. In other words, it's going to be the restoration of the way it's supposed to be. We're not going to be the king. Jesus alone is the king. But we will be those who govern the new heaven, new earth, as Eden is essentially restored on this earth. Things will be the way that it's going to be, and we will have authority to rule and to reign in in righteousness. And that's what Psalm 8 is about. But the writer of Hebrews, in pointing the way things will be and how things will get to the way they're supposed to be, he applies these very things to Jesus himself. He who for a little while was made lower than the angels. It's the Christmas story. It's the incarnation. Jesus, who in very nature is God, and therefore has no beginning, he has no ending. He took the form of a servant. He became like us. He took on flesh, and upon taking on flesh, he who was fully God had become fully man, and as fully man for the time that he was here on earth, He was a little lower than the angels. He still was God, and so therefore the angels would bow and worship him. And yet in his form, he was a little lower. If your mind is blown, it should be. And yet he was crowned with glory and honor. Why? Well, the Apostle Paul, as he writes in Philippians 2, it tells us. Same thing that the writer of Hebrews is alluding to. Because he became obedient, obedient to death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God has exalted his name above every name, whether a name on heaven or on earth. His name is exalted above every name. So he, who is God, became man. He became a little lower than the angels, at least as everybody was looking at him. And yet, because he tasted death for us, he is exalted. He has been crowned, and he is the anointed and appointed king who is and will reign throughout the earth. And this is the hope that the writer of Hebrews is pointing to those who are living in a world that is broken, where they are frustrated, where they feel hopeless, to recognize that God's plan was not broken, that he has not only is he still in control, but he's working out all things for his glory and for the benefit of those who belong to him who are called according to his purpose. Everything is going to work out just as God had fully designed, no matter what it looks like at the present. And it's that hope that we need when we're looking around us and we feel weary because of the world that we live in. It is that hope that God is in control. He has appointed his king, and his king has already begun to reign in a sense because when Jesus was here, he said the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so Jesus is all reigning. So why do we still have all the problems that we have that are around us? Well, just as the writer of Hebrews was saying about the fact that in our humanity, at present, not everything is subject to our feet. The reality is not everything, not everyone is subject to the reign of Jesus Christ right now. He is the rightful king, he has the right to reign, he has laid out his law, he's laid out, uh, and he's demonstrated how we're to live that way. But many people outside the church, and unfortunately inside the church as well, choose to live their lives how they want to live their lives, sometimes picking and choosing from the principles that Jesus uh, preached and lived out, but not totally submissive to who he is.
1: And as a result, we still
0: see sin, and sin is having its effect on all of our lives, the sin that is in the world, the sin that is oppressive, the sin that is destructive. And we need to remind ourselves of this hope that God has appointed his king. His king is reigning, and he will one day return and reign, and all things will be made right. So I was thinking about this this week. As much as we need that hope, and as much as that hope is of incredible importance to us, not just for the future, but for day-to-day sustainability, I had this other gnawing question that was much more immediate to me. If the reason that we see so much that is wrong in the world is because not everything is subject to the rightful king, how much of my life is subject to the rightful king? How much do I pick and choose what I like what is to what I consider my advantage? And how much am I a part of the problem? Because I really only want to be the captain of my ship, the master of my own fate. How much is that true of you? Many of you have heard the story before, but a number of years ago, the uh, paper in London was inviting prominent writers to give their uh, ideas or give their explanation of what is wrong with the world. They sent a, asked G.K. Chesterton if he uh, would chime in and and write a a short uh, essay for the paper. And Chesterton said that he would agree to do that. And so here's the question that was sent to him, what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton's response was, dear sirs, I am. And so I look at this passage and seeing if the world, the problem with the world is things that are not on subjection to Christ. The fact is, it, it, we do know what is going to happen for those who are in rebellion. But what about me who has been, been redeemed? And I still want to live my own way, not in subjection to Jesus. And so I read in this passage a call for me and for you and for everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ to not wait until the day when he returns and then say, okay, now we will live for Jesus and now we will do the things the way that he wants to do. But it's a call to you and to me even this day to say, I will do what Christ calls me to do. That we will all say together, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord.